Due to the nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of traumatic situations, kidnapping, gun violence, and harm against minors. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. April 15th, 2013. Two young brothers, each from former Soviet republics, hunkered in a dingy apartment full of weapons. One, a stocky, muscular man, looked like a boxer. The other, younger and thinner, more like a gamer. But neither was playing that day. They were up to something much more real, deadlier. Laid out in front of them were wires, tools, and two common pressure cookers, the kind your grandmother might use to cook potatoes for Thanksgiving. Inside each metal contraption was a pile of black powder they had extracted from fireworks. The brothers loaded in metal pellets like BBs and nails with the heads shaved off. When they were done, they stuffed the pressure cookers into backpacks and strolled out the door. But they weren't fighting a war in Russia or a disputed Middle East Republic. They were just outside Boston, Massachusetts. Their target? Innocent civilians, families, and children. Spectators at one of the most historic sporting events in the world, the Boston Marathon. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And I'm Carter Roy. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Boston Marathon bombing. On April 15, 2013, two homemade bombs were detonated near the race's finish line, killing three people and injuring over 200. Over the next four days, the region was on high alert and the search for the perpetrators ensued. The investigation gripped the city of Boston and much of the country. As people waited for news, rumors and conspiracy theories poured in. Today, we'll take you step by step, moment by moment, through the events leading up to the explosions and the suspenseful manhunt that followed. Next time, we'll dig through the aftermath of the tragedy and explore two of the biggest conspiracy theories surrounding it. The first, that social media and citizen sleuths helped track down the bombers rather than hindering the investigation. And the second, that law enforcement could have prevented the bombing. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Boston Marathon, the holy grail of running events. Sure, there are bigger races. Marathons held in New York City and London regularly have over 50,000 runners, Chicago 40,000. Boston might seem downright quaint, with about 25,000 participants on average. But what it lacks in numbers, it more than makes up for with prestige, history, gravitas. The Boston Marathon's been around since 1897, making it the oldest annual marathon in the world. Since the 1800s, the race had been held on Patriots Day, in remembrance of the early colonial Americans who fought in nearby Lexington and Concord, ushering in the American Revolution. So the marathon carries a lot of meaning for Americans and Bostonians alike making it one of the most popular races in the running community. Ask any runner to share their top bucket list race, and it's likely Boston. But the race isn't for the faint of heart. It's a challenging course. Some years, racers even battle snow or unexpected heat. Then there's the terrain. The course has several elevation gains, most notably Heartbreak Hill. At 100 feet of elevation gain, on paper, it may not sound like a challenging ascent, but its strategic placement just past mile 20 makes it a tough one, even for experienced runners. It's for these reasons the event always draws big crowds. The Boston Marathon Association estimates around half a million spectators watch the race in person. And 2013 was no different. The day started out cold at 40 degrees Fahrenheit, but it was forecasted to creep up into the 50s. Perfect running weather by many people's standards. That morning, race organizers were up early. They prepped the course and stocked hydration tents and first aid stations. Around 7 a.m., roads were shut down, cameras were checked, thousands of runners converged at the starting line in the Boston suburb of Hopkinton. 
Then, at 9 a.m. sharp, the first starting pistol cracked. The first to hit the course, the mobility-impaired racers. These were runners with disabilities such as blindness, autism, or other challenges. At 9.17, the wheelchair division set out. After that, the elite women gathered at the line. It was a who's who of fast runners that included the defending champion, Sharon Chirope from Kenya, her countryman, Rita Jeptu, Meseret Hailu of Ethiopia, American Shalane Flanagan, and Marie Perez of Mexico. The women hit the pavement at 9.32. Then another pistol fired at 10 on the dot. The elite men were up. Among them were the top two finishers from the previous year, Kenyans Wesley Career and Levy Matebo. After the elite men came waves of general runners. In total, over 20,000 people were now spread across the 26.2-mile course that led to Boston. On that sunny April morning, spectators were out in droves. In the suburbs like Hopkinton and Ashland, families lined the route, some sitting on folding chairs in front of their homes. Closer to the city, the course wound through university campuses like Wellesley College and Boston College. Students congregated along the streets, partying, drinking beer, and cheering the runners along. As the race entered the heart of Boston, crowds got denser. Cafes and restaurants were packed. From the high-rise buildings, people stood on balconies or peeked their heads out of windows to get a look at the competitors. The final stretch of the marathon headed down a long straightaway on Boylston Street. Here, race organizers had built grandstands for spectators. People who couldn't find a seat were packed shoulder to shoulder on the sidewalks. It was a festive atmosphere. At 10.39, the first finisher of the day, a hand cyclist named Tom Davis, raced toward the line at nearly 20 miles per hour. He finished with a time of one hour and 17 minutes. It wasn't until an hour later that the elite women runners appeared. This year, Rita Jeptu of Kenya edged out the field, but not by much. At 11.58, Jeptu broke the banner five minutes faster than the previous year's top runner, two hours and 26 minutes. Close on her heels was Meseret Hailu of Ethiopia, followed by Sharon Chirope, the defending champ. American Shalane Flanagan came in fourth, with a time of two hours and 27 minutes. 10 minutes later, at 12.10, the elite men sprinted toward the tape, but Wesley Career and Levy Matebo weren't among them. Instead, it was Lalisa de Sisa from Ethiopia and Mika Kogo from Kenya battling it out. They raced down Boylston Street, and in the end, de Sisa finished five seconds ahead of Kogo. Over the next two hours, more than 10,000 runners crossed the finish line. Although the elites were finished by lunchtime, thousands of spectators remained on the course cheering on amateur runners. Two of those spectators were newlyweds, Patrick Downs and Jessica Kensky. According to an interview with bostoncollege.com, Patrick preferred watching the later hours of the race so he could cheer on the underdogs. That day, Patrick and Jessica had been strolling through the city, window shopping. 
Around 2.39 p.m., they found a good vantage point in front of a sporting goods store called Marathon Sports near the finish line. Jessica stood behind Patrick, her arms wrapped around him lovingly. Not far from them was a family of five, the Richards, a father, mother, and three children who cheered on the amateur runners like they were elites. One of the boys, eight-year-old Martin, stood perched on a metal crowd control barrier so he could get a better look at the athletes. A short distance from them were Lingzi Liu and her best friend, Dan Ling Zhou, Boston University students originally from China. According to Boston Magazine, Joe wanted to check out the marathon and convinced Lingzi to walk over. They found a spot in front of a popular restaurant called The Forum. What happened next was pieced together from timelines released by CNN and Boston law enforcement's official after-action report. At 2.38, a few blocks from these spectators, two young men with backpacks turned onto Boylston Street. One, a thin, college-aged kid, wore a white baseball cap tilted backward. The other, taller and more muscular, wore a black hat pulled low over his forehead. Sunglasses obscured his eyes. They looked like they could be local college students on their way to class, backpacks laden with books or workout gear. For a minute, the two seemed to observe the race and crowd. But little did spectators know, the backpacks carried objects that would mark the city of Boston forever. Coming up, chaos at the finish line. Listeners, we want to take a moment to tell you about something very special ParCast is doing to commemorate Earth Day. It's a month-long event called Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, featuring new episodes across the entire network. On Unexplained Mysteries, examine some of the greatest advancements and detriments facing our environment and population today. On Serial Killers, crack open the case of activist-turned-murderer Ira Einhorn, a.k.a. the Unicorn Killer. And coming up on Conspiracy Theories, comb through the suspicious circumstances surrounding the death of chemical technician-turned-whistleblower Karen Silkwood. Starting next week, catch these episodes and more all month long. Just look for the dark green Earth Crimes and Conspiracies artwork and listen for free only on Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. Boston, April 15th, 2013, 2.40 p.m. What follows is a minute-by-minute account of the marathon and its aftermath, pieced together from various sources, including timelines from CNN, ABC News, and Boston law enforcement's after-action report. It was the sixth hour of the Boston Marathon, 
The elite racers had finished hours ago, but thousands of spectators still lined the streets, cheering on amateur runners. Hidden amongst the bustling crowd were two young men carrying backpacks, one in a backward-tilted white hat, the other in a black hat. For a moment, they seemed to observe the crowd. Then, at 2.40, the men separated and headed east toward the finish line. Black Hat stopped in front of Marathon Sports. The sporting goods store was close to where newlyweds Patrick Downs and Jessica Kensky watched the race. Unbeknownst to anyone, he dropped his backpack on the ground. While he did that, White Hat continued further down Boylston Street toward the finish line. He strolled, seemingly carefree, a thumb hooked nonchalantly under the strap of his backpack. 245. White Hat stopped in front of a popular restaurant on Boylston Street, the Forum. He lingered near a line of spectators, including the Richard family, not far from Lingzi Lu and Dan Ling Zhou. White Hat blended in with the crowd. He looked like anyone else, glancing at his cell phone and seemingly taking pictures. Then he too dropped his bag and strolled away. 248. A steady stream of runners crossed the finish line. Spectators cheered. 249. White Hat lifted his phone to his ear, allegedly calling the young man in the black hat. The two seemed to speak for about 20 seconds. A moment later, a deafening explosion and fireball ripped through the crowd in front of the Marathon Sports Store. The shockwave blew out glass windows and sent shrapnel flying into the crowd. According to a later interview with Jessica Kensky, she said it felt like she was on a rocket. But of course, she wasn't. Police determined later the explosion was from a pressure cooker bomb. Let's take a second to unpack that. A pressure cooker bomb is an improvised explosive device, or IED, made using an ordinary household pressure cooker, unlike one your grandmother might have in the kitchen. Used correctly, a pressure cooker works by tightly sealing in heat and pressure to cook food faster than a traditional pot. Instead of loading these cookers with russet potatoes, the alleged bombers pack theirs with explosive material, as well as metal screws, nails, and pellets to create more shrapnel or flying debris to cause injuries. No one knows exactly when or how people got the idea to use the everyday kitchen item as an explosive device. But one of the first mentions of them was in a famous counterculture handbook of the 1970s, the Anarchist Cookbook. The way it works is this. When the bomb is ignited, the tightly sealed container holds in the explosion for a brief moment. Then it ruptures and sends shards of metal, and in this case, nails and pellets, flying at the speed of bullets or over a thousand miles per hour. In less time than it took us to explain that, a second pressure cooker bomb exploded 600 feet away from the first. This one in front of the Forum restaurant. 
Once again, a fireball ripped through the crowd. When the smoke cleared, bodies were scattered on the ground, bleeding and burned. Many spectators who were able to move fled the scene. Others stayed behind, treating the injured, attending to their loved ones and friends. According to an interview with bostoncollege.com, Jessica Kensky went into nurse mode. She ripped apart her purse and used the straps to fashion a makeshift tourniquet on her husband Patrick's severed leg. While she attended to his injuries, someone else attended to hers. A man pushed her to the ground to smother the flames on her back. Two others cut off her jeans and windbreaker to examine her wounds. Eventually, she was lifted onto a stretcher and raced away. Meanwhile, near the side of the second bomb, Lingzi Lu and Danling Zhou had been tossed like ragdolls into a fence. Once the smoke dissipated, Zhou noticed her organs spilling out of her abdomen. But her friend Lingzi was even worse. Lingzi's legs were gashed open, and she was bleeding profusely from her femoral artery. As Joe clutched her wound, she tried to calm her friend down. In later court testimony, Joe explained that she didn't scream. She didn't want to waste her remaining energy. Just yards away, the same bomb had blown Bill Richard into the street, separating him from his family. Without hesitation, he raced back into the chaos in search of his wife and three children. He found his daughter, Jane, first. One of her legs had been severed by the blast. But tragically, her brother was in even worse shape. Amongst other horrific injuries, eight-year-old Martin had sustained third-degree burns to much of his body. Bill later testified in court that he knew after seeing the injuries that his son wasn't going to make it. And he wasn't alone. In total, three people were dead and over 260 were injured. Many were critically wounded and emergency responders were racing to get them treated. At 2.53, four minutes after the explosions, Local hospitals received an alert about a mass casualty event. They were told to expect victims imminently. Some, like Jessica Kensky, were rushed to a nearby medical tent, which she later described was filled with the wounded's animalistic screams. Others were loaded into emergency vehicles to be taken to hospitals. At 2.58, the first ambulance raced away from the scene and headed to Massachusetts General Hospital. At 3.04, the ER received its first patient. By 3.15, there were more patients. Mass General and other Boston hospitals were inundated with victims. Injuries included everything from blown eardrums and burns to puncture wounds and cardiac arrest. USA Today quoted George Velma Hose, chief of trauma surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital. He explained that many of the injuries were traumatic amputations. Some victims had, quote, up to 40 pieces of shrapnel embedded in their bodies, mostly in their legs, but as high up as their necks, end quote. The president of Mass General, 
called the chaotic scene in their ER unprecedented, and the facility had been around for almost 200 years. 3.37, almost an hour after the explosions, the last critical patient was transported from the bomb site to a hospital. Besides the immediate challenge of treating so many critically injured patients, officials in Boston faced a series of tough questions. Namely, was this a terrorist attack? And if so, was it over? For many in the area, the tragedy dredged up memories of 9-11. Even though 12 years had passed since that day, the scars still hadn't healed. It was too soon to classify this as a terrorist event, but Boston's law enforcement community wasn't taking any chances. Within minutes of the explosions, information about the bombs was relayed to state and federal intelligence agencies. Not long after, Boston police deployed detectives to hospitals to interview witnesses and collect evidence. At 4.05, President Barack Obama contacted the mayor of Boston and the governor of Massachusetts. Meanwhile, with very little information given to the public, the first rumors, conspiracy theories, and misinformation began to spread. People wanted answers. Who had done this? And perhaps more importantly, where were they now? 4.28, less than two hours after the bombing, the New York Post reported a 20-year-old Saudi Arabian man was a suspect and in custody. They also claimed more than 12 people were killed and nearly 50 were injured. According to the Post's publisher, they had a source within law enforcement, but the Boston police commissioner denied the report an hour later. To be fair, that wasn't the only news source to allegedly jump to conclusions. At 5.30, NBC News reported that police were guarding a possible suspect. During the next five hours, there were 61 reports of suspicious packages and backpacks in the Boston area. All were investigated and cleared by bomb squads. Clearly, the public was terrified. Meanwhile, authorities had their work cut out for them. Finding a suspect in a crowd of thousands was like finding a needle in a haystack, but they were up for the challenge. Within hours of the bombs going off, law enforcement had some suspects under round-the-clock surveillance, and the FBI launched its largest ever airborne fleet to circle over Boston. A night passed without much progress. The next day, April 16th, the city remained on high alert, but law enforcement was about to get a lead. Surveillance footage was amongst the numerous pieces of evidence examined by the police and FBI. They gathered as many locations and angles as possible around the bomb sites. One was a camera from the Forum restaurant directly behind bomb number two. That's where the Martin family, Lingzi Liu, and Dan Ling Zhou watched the race. FBI analysts reviewed the footage numerous times, but couldn't identify a bomber. But then, a spectator submitted a cell phone photo he had taken directly across from the restaurant, moments before the explosion. 
The snapshot showed the Richard family, Jane and Martin up front, cheering. Their parents, Bill and Denise, standing behind them. And just behind them was a backpack on the ground and a young man in a backward white cap. According to an ABC News interview with FBI agent Kevin Swindon, who oversaw the surveillance analysis, that photo sparked an aha moment. They officially had a suspect. From there, the FBI scrubbed through as much surveillance footage as possible in search of the young man in the white hat. And they found something interesting. He wasn't alone. With the help of footage from another nearby bar, they noticed that White Hat had arrived with another young man also carrying a backpack. They called this new character Black Hat. Suddenly, the FBI had photos of not one, but two suspects. And with that came a new objective. Find the men as soon as possible, before they struck again. Coming up one of the largest manhunts in Boston's history. Now back to the story. Tuesday, April 16th, 2013. The Boston police and FBI had discovered surveillance footage of two possible bombing suspects, but their identities were still a mystery. At the time, law enforcement officials decided to withhold the photos from the public We don't know exactly why, and perhaps they didn't want to alert the suspects that they were onto them. Or maybe they thought they could locate them without the public's help. Either way, the public wasn't waiting around. They were going to do their own investigation. During the next few days, many spectators at the marathon uploaded their personal photos of the event to various websites like Reddit. Online sleuths come through them, hunting for the bombers. In part two, we'll do a deep dive into amateur investigations like this, which some have termed digilantism or digital vigilantism. At times, it's helped law enforcement, but it can also hinder them or hurt innocent people. In this case, Reddit users zeroed in on a young man with a backpack watching the race with a man carrying a duffel bag. Much like the FBI agent's earlier aha moment, the amateur investigators had their own. Some were convinced they'd found the bombers. On Thursday, April 18th, the New York Post got wind of it and put their photo on the cover page with the headline, Bag Men. But it turned out one of the men was just a high school athlete who had moved to the U.S. from Morocco. This may have been a tipping point for law enforcement. Perhaps they worried if they didn't reveal their actual suspects, the public might attack an innocent person. Later that day at 5.20 p.m., FBI and police officials held a press conference unveiling the photos of White Hat and Black Hat. They requested the public's help identifying them. Little did authorities know, releasing the photos would trigger a deadly chain of events. 10.31 p.m. At the Massachusetts Institute of Technology campus, only two miles from the bombing, 
27-year-old officer Sean Collier sat in his squad car. And when you think of MIT, you likely picture a peaceful, quiet place of study. But that night, Officer Collier was ambushed by two men and shot six times. According to CBS News, police investigators later believed the shooters were the bombing suspects. And they were trying to get Collier's gun, except his holster didn't release the weapon. So the two suspects allegedly fled the scene. Shortly after this, a Mercedes SUV was carjacked a few miles from MIT. According to an interview with Boston.com, the SUV's driver, a 26-year-old Chinese tech developer named Dun Meng, pulled over to send a text message. As he was parked, a young man approached and knocked on his window. When Meng rolled down his window, the young man reached in, unlocked the door, and forced himself inside. He then pointed a gun at Meng and asked if he'd heard about the marathon bombings. The man claimed he was the mastermind behind it and said he'd just killed a police officer in Cambridge. Moments later, another young man, presumably the thinner, younger one, drove behind them in a separate car and later hopped in Meng's car. The two forced Meng to drive and directed him through the city for close to an hour. While Meng drove, he was understandably afraid for his life. If these men were the marathon bombers, they likely wouldn't hesitate to kill him. In the same interview with Boston.com, he said he kept thinking this was his last day, his last night in the world. For now, though, Meng was still alive, and he followed instructions to a T until around midnight when the men told him to pull into a gas station. Meng likely realized this might be his only opportunity to escape. So while one of the suspects played around with the vehicle's GPS and the other was buying snacks inside the station, Meng made a break for it. He fled the car and ran to another gas station, where he urged the worker to contact the authorities. A few minutes after midnight, Cambridge police received Meng's frantic 911 call. Within minutes, they arrived at his location. Meng chronicled what had happened to him and provided descriptions of the two men. Also, being the tech-savvy programmer that he was, he had a revelation. The police could track his car using its built-in GPS device. Police worked quickly, and by 1241, they had pinpointed the vehicle's location to Watertown, a neighboring suburb of Boston. When Cambridge police alerted their counterparts in Watertown of the stolen SUV, they had no idea what would ensue. Minutes after the call went out, a Watertown police officer had a visual on Meng's SUV, but he was instructed to wait for a supervisor before approaching the vehicle. In the meantime, the SUV pulled away, now followed by a Honda sedan. The officer tailed the vehicles, but suddenly the SUV stopped. The driver exited the vehicle and opened fire on the police car. At almost the same time, the police supervisor arrived on the scene. Now, the driver of the SUV turned his weapon on him. Bullets tore through the windshield, narrowly missing the officer. 
one of the men emerged from the other car, the Honda sedan, and launched homemade bombs at the officers. 1244. Watertown police officers radioed to dispatch that shots had been fired. Almost immediately, a call went out to neighboring police departments requesting backup. Nearby officers, already on high alert because of the marathon bombing and shooting at MIT, raced to the scene. A few miles away, the battle raged on. The suspects tossed more homemade explosives and a pressure cooker bomb at officers. 1249. During a pause in the firefight, the larger suspect was tackled by the police. Meanwhile, the thin one jumped into the stolen SUV and raced away. In the process, he struck his accomplice, running him over. During his escape, more shots were fired, severely wounding a Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority police officer. About a half mile from the gunfight, the suspect abandoned the SUV and took off on foot. What followed was one of the largest manhunts in the history of Massachusetts. Over the next day, over 2,000 law enforcement officers converged in the Watertown area to search for the missing suspect. Meanwhile, early Friday, April 19th, 1.06 a.m., the suspect who was hit by his fleeing partner was pronounced dead at a local hospital. While there, he was fingerprinted and identified as 26-year-old Tamerlan Tsarnaev, a Chechen-American. Police used the information to identify the second suspect, 19-year-old Jokar Tsarnaev, a University of Massachusetts student and Tamerlan's younger brother. Police now had the identities of the men who opened fire in Watertown, the alleged shooters of MIT officer Sean Collier, and possible marathon bombers. There was likely a sense of relief at that moment, but also of trepidation. There were two significant problems. First, one of the suspects was dead, so police couldn't interrogate him to confirm whether or not he'd done it or even learn why he did it, or if there were others involved. Second, and perhaps more pressing, the second suspect, Joe Carr, was missing. He'd taken off on foot in Watertown. There was a chance he was still there, but it was also possible he'd evaded the police blockades and fled. Either way, Boston and some of the surrounding suburbs were put under shelter-in-place orders while the hunt continued. At 2.05 a.m., the FBI released enhanced photos of the suspects with front views of their faces. At 8.15, all taxi service in Boston was suspended. 8.36, an Amtrak train that departed from Boston was stopped and searched in Connecticut. Across town, city officials canceled the evening's Red Sox baseball game. Perhaps they worried. The alleged bombers were part of a larger terrorist cell and would target the event. 4.30, with no sign of Joe Carr, law enforcement officials wondered if he had escaped the area. They debated lifting the lockdown and shelter-in-place restrictions. Around 5.30, officials started to open up the city. 
Local buses and trains resumed limited service. Six o'clock. The mayor of Boston, the governor, and various FBI and police officials called another press conference to update the public on the manhunt. They also lifted the region-wide lockdown. While authorities weren't giving up the search for Jokar, they had to assume he was in the wind for now. Meanwhile, less than a mile from the shootout in Watertown, David Henneberry, a retired telephone technician, saw something strange in his yard. According to later court testimony, he noticed that his 22-foot boat, which was parked on a trailer, shrink-wrapped for the winter, seemed to have been tampered with. Henneberry ventured out to take a look. What he found shocked him. The boat deck was covered in blood. Then he saw a body. Henneberry didn't wait around to see whose it was, he hurried inside his house, where he called 911. After that, all hell broke loose. Within minutes, multiple Watertown police officers arrived, along with SWAT teams and bomb squads. A police helicopter circled overhead with spotlights and thermal imaging cameras. And they waited. At 6.54 p.m., a police officer fired a shot at the boat. Other officers may have assumed it came from the suspect, so they opened fire. A senior law enforcement official on the scene ordered a ceasefire. About an hour later, at 7.46, officers deployed flashbangs, small explosive devices with a bright explosion and loud boom, to encourage the person out of the boat. At 8.02, an FBI hostage response team attempted to communicate with a suspect and bring about their surrender. Minutes later, Massachusetts State Police rolled in an armored vehicle with a remote arm to pull back the tarp on the boat. 8.41, the suspect, bleeding heavily, emerged and was taken into custody. He was transported by ambulance to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. At the hospital, police confirmed the identity of the suspect as Jokar Sarnayev. All around the city, people celebrated his capture. Though the tense manhunt was over, a lengthy investigation and healing process was beginning. How did these two young men, one a naturalized American citizen and the other a green card holder, become terrorists? Inside the boat where Jokar was hiding, investigators found a short manifesto written in pencil and carved into wooden slats. FBI agent Michael Nealon testified that it seemed to say, stop killing our innocent people and we will stop. Meanwhile, in various hospitals around the city, innocent men, women, and children underwent painful operations to remove shrapnel from their bodies. According to an interview with BostonCollege.com, Patrick Downs endured 16 surgeries over eight months to treat his injuries. Jessica Kinski wasn't so lucky. The bomb shrapnel was too close to blood vessels to be safely removed. Eventually, doctors had to amputate part of her leg. Regardless, some considered them the lucky ones, as others were dead 
or forced to bury their loved ones. On April 22nd, a memorial was held at Boston University for Lindsay Liu. The funeral for eight-year-old Martin Richard was the next day. Behind the scenes, investigators were hard at work. Meanwhile, rumors continued spreading like wildfire. Next time, we'll examine two big questions and conspiracies that surrounded the case. First, had internet sleuths and vigilantism hampered the investigation and perhaps endangered lives? And second, had law enforcement received a tip about Tamerlan and Jokar Zarnaev years before? If so, could they have prevented the bombing? Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time for part two of the Boston Marathon bombing. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We're here on Mondays and Wednesdays with all new episodes. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Adam DeSilva, edited by Wendelin Sabroso and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, produced by Joshua Kern, with sound design by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Carter Roy.